Make us glad, Lord our God, with the prophet Elijah your servant and with the kingdom of the house of David your anointed. May he arrive soon and bring joy to our hearts. Let no stranger sit upon his throne, nor let others continue to usurp his glory. For you swore by your holy name that through all eternity his lamp will never go dark. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 135, The Rebuilt, Destroyed Synagogue. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1920, a Jewish representative of the British government read from the book of Isaiah when he was honored with the Haftorah on a summer Sabbath in Jerusalem's old city. The synagogue in which he did so exquisitely embodies the longing and loss, the poignancy and pain, and ultimately the enduring hope for redemption that lies at the heart of Jewish history. Chapter 40 of Isaiah begins with the words, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, a command which can be translated as comfort or console my people. Many, many decades before the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, Isaiah speaks to Israel of the return that will occur after 70 years of exile, of the fall of Babel at the hands of Persia, of Cyrus's proclamation allowing the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And of course, many are struck by the fact that Isaiah, who we are informed at the beginning of the book, prophesied during the days of Kings Uziahu through Hezekiah, suddenly speaks of an age that is well over a century in the future. Would it not make more sense for these visions to be delivered by, say, Jeremiah, who will live at the moment of destruction? The answer, I think, is that Isaiah prophesies far into the future in order to teach Jews who will live hundreds or thousands of years after him, to never give up hope for something that will also occur far into the future. Isaiah himself speaks not only of events that will take place during the Second Temple period, he also includes visions of a time when all the world recognizes the miracle that is the Jewish people, visions that he clearly hopes will be realized in the Jewish return from Babylonia, but which will ultimately be fulfilled only long after. Thus, even the beginning of his proclamation, chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye consolingly to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Thus Isaiah, who speaks of redemptions yet to come, provides a model of Jewish hope for Jews who throughout the centuries never gave up hope for redemption yet to come. Therefore, Isaiah's words in chapter 40 were read in synagogues year after year, decade after decade, century after century, on the Sabbath after the ninth of Av, right after the destruction of Jerusalem was mourned. And therefore, more than any other prophet, Isaiah's words served as the medium through which we as a people highlighted the endurance of our hope. And one synagogue story sublimely symbolizes the resonant poignancy of Isaiah's impact on all of us. My thoughts on this extraordinary edifice and Jerusalem throughout the generations are inspired by and drawn from Aaron Horowitz's wonderful book about the old city, which is called Jerusalem, Footsteps Through Time. In 1267, the great sage Rabbi Moses ben Nachman Ramban arrived from Spain to a Jerusalem devoid of Jews. 
he set about showing love for the sanctity of the city by creating a house of prayer. The synagogue that Ramban brought into being became the site of Jewish prayer for the next several centuries. In the 16th century, the synagogue was torn down by non-Jews. Ramban's synagogue was rebuilt, but then in 1586, the Jewish community was permanently driven from the structure. But the Jewish lovers of Jerusalem refused to give up. Expelled from the site where the Ramban had established Jewish prayer, they sought to serve God elsewhere in the city. The Sephardic Jews in Jerusalem found a location a bit to the south and built over the years several houses of worship that today are known as the four Sephardi synagogues. For the Ashkenazic community, the restoration of Jewish prayer in Jerusalem would be a much more winding road, but it would ultimately triumph with an astonishing achievement. In 1699, hundreds of Jews arrived as followers of a charismatic and messianically-minded man known as Rabbi Yehuda Hasid. They built a synagogue, but lacking funds for the project, they borrowed a great deal from local Arabs. In response to their failure to pay their debts, an Arabic pogrom in 1720 attacked the synagogue, burning it to the ground along with 40 Torah scrolls that were inside. Around a century later, a follower of the Gona Vilna by the name of Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Shklov began to negotiate with Muslim authorities for the right to return to Jerusalem and to build a house of worship there. This was only achieved 20 years later in 1836. First, a smaller building was constructed, known as Menachem Tzion, but then a more spacious structure was created on the very same site of the previous pogrom. Where their brethren had prayed, these Jews decided they would pray. Where the Torah scrolls had been incinerated, new Torah scrolls would be lovingly read. Where a Beit Knesset, a synagogue, had stood and been reduced to rubble, a new synagogue would rise. It was an extraordinary edifice, one of the most exquisite in the Jewish world with a marble floor and a dome adorned with designs that imitated the starry sky. It was technically known as the Beit Yaakov Synagogue, named for the father of Baron Rothschild, who had provided a great deal of the funding. But because it was built on a synagogue that had been destroyed by an anti-Semitic mob, it was called the Churva, which means the destruction, a striking name for such an exquisite creation. There is a certain foreboding here, for what was once a Churva, once destroyed, could be destroyed again. But the name itself is also an embodiment of all that Jews believed, that the love for Jerusalem, even when it was in a state of ruin, would ultimately, for the Jewish lovers of Jerusalem, merit its rebuilding. More Jews began to pour into the sacred city. And meanwhile, toward the second half of the century, the Zionist movement was launched, and the Balfour Declaration was achieved in 1917. Thus it was on the Shabbat of summer 1920 that Herbert Samuel, recently appointed High Commissioner of British Mandate Palestine, made his way to the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem's old city to mark the Sabbath with his Jewish brethren. He entered the Churva, and his guest of honor was invited to read the Haftarah, the Haftorah, the prophetic portion from the magnificent Bima. Because it was the Sabbath immediately following the ninth of Av, he read from chapter 40 of Isaiah, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami. Thus did His Majesty's representative proclaimed to all assembled Isaiah's immortal words, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. For many there, on the heels of the Balfour Declaration, it seemed as if the Messianic era was almost at hand, that the words of Isaiah would finally come to fruition. And yet and yet the drama of the day was not yet done. One of the worshippers in the magnificent sanctuary was the great sage and rabbinic leader of religious Zionist in the Holy Land, Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak Cook, 
After Herbert Samuel finished the Haftarah, he recited the traditional blessings. The penultimate prayer spoke of David, declaring his dynasty the rightful rulers of Jerusalem. Make us glad, Lord our God, with the prophet Elijah your servant and with the kingdom of the house of David your anointed. May he arrive soon and bring joy to our hearts. Let no stranger sit upon his throne, nor let others continue to usurp his glory. For you swore by your holy name that through all eternity his lamp will never go dark. As the Jewish-British High Commissioner read these words, suddenly, it is said, Rav Kook started and repeated them. Al kiso lo yeshev zar, let no stranger sit upon his throne. What did Rabbi Cook mean? We cannot be certain, but perhaps, in the midst of all the joy that there was at the moment following the Balfour Declaration, some of which Rabbi Cook himself no doubt shared, perhaps the rabbi meant to remind all those attending that the British mandate was not a Jewish government, that Herbert Samuel was not the Messiah, and that despite the wonders that had occurred, disappointment was still a possibility. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, the fact that this warning was issued in a sanctuary that glorious though it was, was still called churva, destruction, hinted at that time to the fact that Jews in the world still had many enemies, hinted at that time to the possibility of destruction yet to come. And so it was. The Balfour Declaration was followed by riots across Israel, and British capitulation culminated with the infamous White Paper of 1935, declaring that with the Jews that were currently in the Holy Land, the obligations of the Balfour Declaration had been met, that immigration would be severely limited, and the gates of Mandate Palestine shut to the millions of Jews desperate to leave Europe. In 1942, Judaism's most important rabbis gathered in the sanctuary of the Churva to pray for the doomed Jews of Europe that had been left by the British to die. As I've noted in commentary, one can only imagine the pain and desperation that pervaded the sanctuary at that point. They stood in a synagogue named Churva, and Churva, destruction, was descending on Jewry throughout much of the world. In 1948, the Jewish quarter surrendered to the Jordanian Legion, which dynamited the Churva and reduced it to rubble. It was a Churva once more. The leader of the Legion proudly proclaimed that, quote, for the first time in a thousand years, not a single Jew remains in the Jewish quarter. Not a single building remains intact. This makes the Jews' return here impossible, end quote. But to think that was to miss the very point of the words of Isaiah that were read around the world year after year on the Shabbat after the saddest Jewish day of the year. The leader of the Legion who dismissed the possibility of the Jewish return to the old city of Jerusalem missed the power and endurance of how Isaiah taught Jews to hope. In 1967, the Jews returned to the old city in miraculous events that seemed to be literal fulfillments of further verses of Isaiah in chapter 40, such as verse 9. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. It took decades after this moment for the Churva to be rebuilt, to a great extent as it was. But now, its dome once again marks the skyline of the old city of Jerusalem, thereby embodying its very name, reminding us that it once again rose from the ruins, thereby embodying a Jewish people that phoenix-like refused to die, eternally ascending from the ashes. The Jewish resurrection embodied by a resurrected synagogue named for destruction itself embodies Jewish Jerusalem. But the name of the synagogue, Churva Destruction, also reminds us that even in our extraordinary age, there is still 
much to mourn. There is still anti-Semitism festering all over the world. The Messianic era is not at hand. The descendant of David for whom Rabbi Cook prayed has not yet come. The Temple Mount itself is a site from which Jewish worship is banned. And Isaiah's further vision of a temple in Jerusalem that inspires all the earth is far from fulfilled. But within this morning there must also be wonder. Comfort ye, comfort ye, console ye, console ye, my people, Isaiah commanded. And Jews every year obeyed the prophet's command, inspiring themselves to never give up hope, inspiring themselves to rebuild again and again, bringing about a story which is unlike any other, a story of a Jewish love for and return to Jerusalem, a story that is the ultimate embodiment of Jewish eternity. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.